Grace and peace, you're listening to United We Pray. Taking racial struggles to the throne of grace, United We Pray is a ministry devoted to prayer about racial strife, especially between Christians. We want to help Christians think better about race in a way that is biblical and helpful, clear and hopeful. You can learn more about our work at uwepray.com. That's U-W-E-P-R-A-Y.com, where you can find articles, old episodes, and more. I'm Austin Suter, one of the co-hosts, and I am joined today by special guest Marty Duran. How are you, Marty? Woo, doing good. How are you? Doing well. For our listeners, Marty Duran is an author, speaker, churchman, podcaster, and all-around good guy. So thank you very much for being here. Did I miss anything? Papa, dad, husband. Great. So I've definitely appreciated your work. I think I first came to know about you on social media, where you're a regular voice speaking up about public theology and justice. Has that always been an area of concern for you? No, I grew up a very normal white kid in the suburbs uh, of Atlanta and didn't think a thing about racial justice at all. Uh, went to an all, virtually all white church. In fact, when my mother became a believer, I was maybe three, and I don't recall uh, any non-white folks in our church, maybe some bus ministry kids. We were in a church that went kind of independent Baptist and that was back in bus ministry days. So we had a parking lot full, just like Jack Hiles church or Thomas road or anybody else. Maybe had some African-American kids come in on the buses, but then we moved churches when I was in maybe the ninth grade, went to another overwhelmingly white church, overwhelmingly white high school. And by overwhelmingly, I mean, there were 300 plus in my graduating class and less than 10 were not white. So I grew up in a context in which white was just, I mean, it was just all around. There was no other uh, expression that I was familiar with, not close friends with any African-Americans, not close friends with any Latinos or uh, any um, Asian, whether Japanese or Korean or Chinese or any other nationality. Uh, so I just grew up in that context. And so, no, I haven't always been uh, interested or concerned about uh, justice issues or racial issues for uh, the first number of decades of my life. It just wasn't even an issue. Was it anything you were hearing about in church at all or just not an issue, period? No, dude. My pastor told racially tinged jokes from the pulpit. I will never forget this as long as I live. I mean, he didn't do this a lot, but he would do it occasionally. But we had a black couple, or maybe it was two black men that visited one night. So this would have been in the 70, late 70s, probably, possibly the early 80s. And uh, my pastor, with these guys sitting like directly in front of him, eight rows back, never been in the church before, tells a watermelon joke about two black dudes. And the thing about it is, Austin, is he, he did not understand that that was a racially motivated joke. He thought that was a joke to connect to these guys. Wow. That's, that's how far afield, uh, we were, um, when I was in high school, uh, there was a guy that was, uh, at a different high school an African-American football player started visiting our, our church with a friend of his, um, I, the friend's dad was a deacon and he was happy for, uh, this African-American young man to come to our church but he made it clear to his son that he would not be coming home for Sunday dinner. So that's the kind of, there just wasn't any ad addressing of any kind of racial issues at all. Now this is South of Atlanta. So, you know, Southern Christian leadership conference, Martin Luther King center, Ebenezer Baptist church. Uh, every time you drive through Atlanta, you'd see the Jesus saves the neon Jesus saves sign lit up on the side of Ebenezer Baptist church. And there were, there were never any 
uh, racially, racial reconciliation or one in Christ or anything like that. It was just never even discussed. So how do you get from there to here? So, um, I knew enough to know by the time I went into ministry, I knew enough to know that uh, a church should actively try to reach everybody in its community, regardless of whether they were uh, African-American or any other uh, nationality or ethnicity or race. But I didn't know anything about the differences in culture or uh, the effect of being a part of the majority culture or anything. I didn't know that stuff was like way off my plate. I was just curious to try to find a way to reach people in the community when I started pastoring. And I was, we were well outside of Atlanta, way in the country and uh, a country. I, I jokingly refer to it truthfully as a family owned and operated church about 40 miles uh, south of Atlanta. And the closest residence to the front doors of the church building was a mobile home that an African-American family lived in. Literally, I could have thrown a hymnal from the front porch and hit their hit their house. And um, so I just became really burdened that our church literally had signs in the community that said everyone welcome. And I knew everyone wasn't welcome. So I began to try to and, and I was young and really dumb. And I don't say that as any kind of like, you know, uh, to put myself down and to make myself look bad or anything. I'm, I'm talking about I was like really, really dumb uh, in ministry. And so I came up with a plan. I introduced the plan. I didn't involve anybody in it. And it was just like, we got to reach everybody, including these black folks who live down the street. And, um, not long after that sermon, one of the men in the church came and said, why, why did you have to say that? And I'm like, well, you know, we're called to reach everybody. And our sign says, everybody welcome. and Everybody's not welcome. What are we going to do if a black person comes in, ask them to leave in the name of Jesus? And uh, he's like, no, we wouldn't do anything like that. We, we let them stay for the whole service. <laughs> and then, and then he said, well, Marty, here's the thing you got to understand. He said, church is the only place we can go to get away from them. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, my ministry at that church didn't last very long. Um, but even then, uh, then I went from there indirectly to a larger church on the other side of Atlanta, also in a suburb, very predominantly white. Again, not a church that talked about reconciliation to any degree, but not, not in, in the same kind of context in which I grew up. We did have African-American members and African-American people were welcomed and, and loved but the location of the, of our campus was such that it was a very predominantly white situation. But I met some folks there, interacted with some of the local pastors who were African-American, uh, did some ministry, a small amount of ministry with one of the churches that had, was running a homeless shelter and had some interactions there. So I began to kind of get a, a little bit expanded interactions with uh, African-American folks and African-American pastors to some degree. And so, um, but even, even still, you know, we rocked on for a while and uh, I moved on to pastor another church and it, you know, it was just never an issue. You know, we, we loved it. If we had non-white people come, we loved them. And we began to, you know, I didn't, I, I don't remember saying anything dumb from the pulpit that would have, could have been construed as racist. And, um, you know, my, my home growing up was not, I, I, I would say it was not overtly racist. And my mother worked very, very hard to make sure that we loved everyone and treated everyone the same. And my dad too, to a degree, but my mom was very overt about it. She was the first one who said, you don't, you don't use that word. 
when, when you're referring to black people, you don't use it. She's the first one that ever told me that. And she made sure that we learned not to say that word because we were saying it regularly up until fifth, sixth, seventh grade, you know, it was just part of our nature and family history and everything else. I have a picture, uh, when I was a kid, little, like two years old of me standing on the hood of my dad's car. And, uh, it's a 66 Ford galaxy 500. And there's a tag on the front with a little bitty, uh, rebel soldier. And the flag says, uh, he's got his pistols out. I think if my memory's correct. And the flag says, hell no, we ain't forgetting, uh, talking about the civil war. Right. And so that was kind of the context of, of family life to, until my mother was, became a believer and we started going to church as a family and she started heading a lot of that stuff off the past within our family. Um, so I, I had a, a, an inner context for prejudice is wrong, but I had no conscience of the larger issues in society or anything like that. So at some point, and I, I can't remember the year now, a close friend of our family had a run in with law enforcement and wound up in jail, <clears throat> uh, white guy. But I knew by virtue of what the law enforcement and the district attorney were saying that they were, they were saying things about him that weren't true. They were saying things about the situation that weren't true. They were making claims that even the supposed victims weren't making, you know, and so sat in the court with him for a couple of three days, watch this whole thing play out. And I'm sitting there in the gallery thinking I could do a better job of defending you than your defense attorney is doing because he's missing this, this, and this. And so that was my first experience with the concept of the legal system. Isn't what I'd always been taught that it was. I'd never had a negative running with the police. I, honestly, I still haven't to this day that I can think of. I've never had a negative running with cops, always taught to respect police officers and, and, to my knowledge, I always have, but I didn't have any context for something like that going wrong. That was like a made for TV movie. And, and the, they end up catching the bad guy, the bad cops in the end, you know? And so sitting through this, I'm like, okay, well, this is not right. There is something wrong here that this can happen. Uh, there's no way for this to be undone because his defense is not quality. They're not making the right arguments. They're not catching these guys and the contradictions that they're saying. And the D the assistant district attorney and the, and the officer are, are, they're just saying things that are not true and nobody's calling them on it. And so sometime after that, probably I read the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And, um, even though she says in the forward, the original forward, uh, at that time, I don't know what her marital status is now, but at that time she was married to a guy who I think was an attorney in the federal government. And if I remember correctly, she said, some of the concepts here may be questionable because not, not even my husband agrees with everything that I've written or something like that. Uh, but and every it, married author said, amen. Yes, that's right. Uh, and so then it really wasn't the racial part. It was the war on drugs part. And so I started paying attention to the war on drugs and read Gary Webb's series, uh, dark Alliance for the CIA and the crack ep ep epidemic and all that stuff. And just began to be aware of then how the legal system functioned within the law and order society and all those kinds of things. So I kind of backed into racial reconciliation as a result of realizing that the American legal system isn't all that I was told that it was as I was growing up. There's some real problems that need to be addressed. And then I came to learn that they disproportionately affect African-American people and poor people. Um, and then from there, I kind of got into the racial justice side of things from a biblical perspective from Ephesians and just understanding every nation, tongue and tribe and things like that. 
Now, you mentioned a couple examples of resistance to speaking out and why'd you have to say that and that type of thing. Is that kind of feedback a thing of the past for you or you still get that? So not, I don't get much feedback on that kind of thing. Uh, Certainly not family and friends. Uh, Once you talk about it long enough, everybody kind of knows where you stand and they're either going to want to talk about it or just avoid it uh, altogether. One of the things that I thought about years after this happened was uh, I was in the, I don't know, the ninth grade or something like that. And, um, uh, one of my classmates was a year behind me. His name was, uh, Willie, but we were in the same PE period. If you remember from high school, you're not always in PE with your own peers. And so he and I kind of had a, an acquaintanceship, not even a friendship. Like we never saw each other off campus or anything like that. But one, one day, uh, I remember going to my locker and Willie had gotten into a fight. And when I say a fight, I mean, this dude was like, this dude could fight. He would have killed me in like no time wiry kid, uh, shorter than me, but just muscle and bone and sinew is all he was made of from head to toe. And he was just wearing some guy out in the hallway. Well, the teachers broke in and, um, and Willie said, ask Marty, he'll tell you who started it. And it's not my fault. Well, the truth was I wasn't even there when it started. I don't know whose fault it was. I didn't know whose fault it was. It took me years to realize why he was asking the teacher to ask me rather than one of the, you know, half dozen black kids that were standing around. I was in a ninth grade and I was a white guy. And he saw that I had a standing that other people around that circle did not have. And if I would speak up for him, it would carry some weight. Now that probably wasn't true, but in his perception, it was definitely true. It took me years to even think about that. That's what he probably meant by calling it, calling me out in that circumstance. So I do remember uh, after the, the shootings in Charleston, uh, when Dylan Roof murdered those people in, in the, uh, the church, the next Sunday, I was on, uh, part-time on staff at a church here in Nashville as a teaching pastor. And one of the other teaching pastors said to me, you know, we should do something Sunday to honor these uh, who were killed. And so we put together a collage for the screens and, and we were in a, is a racially mixed. One of our campuses was pretty racially mixed and by pretty racially mixed. There was probably about 8% non-white. The other campus uh, was almost totally white, but we decided to do this. And so we had a moment of silence. We called, I think we called them by name, had a you know screen with all their faces on it. And we walked through, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. These are not just people who were murdered as bad as that is. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we should mourn over what's happened to them. And then we had prayer, and then we went on with the service. So after the service was over, one of the African-American men in the campus where I happened to preach that Sunday and be on stage to do that, he said, I never thought I'd see this in white church. So he, you know, he'd been attending for a year or so. And for him, it was a shock that a predominantly white church would give any thought at all to the murder of black brothers and sisters at a predominantly black church. And I was just like, it was just another instance of my mind being blown over how much I had missed for so long. So through all that, uh, when I say things now, I mean, unless it's on social media and I'm asking somebody, you know, do you really understand CRT? Um, <laughs> you know, most of the time I don't get any kind of pushback because Deep down, I think most white American Christians now realize that there's something to it, even if they're not sure what there is to it, and they know they should know. 
And so I don't get the pushback that I used to get. Even if somebody's kind of looking at me kind of sideways a little bit, they, they don't really push back. That has been my experience. So long as you, the topic stays vague enough mm-hmm. or general enough. So you can say, you know, Christians need to oppose racism and you'll get a chorus of yes and amens. Yeah. Yeah. But you say something specific about the criminal justice system and you might get a, hey, don't get political now. When you so the policing thing's a whole different kettle of fish, especially in the South, because uh, law enforcement officers are viewed with great respect, especially by church people, uh, especially church police officers. But in the South, there's a there's a real elevation of law enforcement officers by people in church. So anytime you're criticizing policing, you're going to get really strong questions and strong objections. But there's plenty of police chiefs and former police chiefs who are as critical of American modern policing as any ACLU lawyer ever thought about being. And so I've learned to lean on some of those guys that make public statements decrying how policing takes place in so many places in America. And it's just like, I don't, you don't have to believe me. I'm not the one who's making these claims. There are police officers who recognize there is a problem and this problem needs to be addressed. And, and I don't have to say defund the cops. I don't have to, you know, want policemen killed. I don't, but there's a problem. And so as we can talk about the, the facts that support the evidence of a problem, then uh, it becomes a little easier to talk about. Now let's talk about how racially this is, there's a disparity. Um, I learned this, and this is what I recommend people to do. I went to lunch after the, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. I went to lunch with some guys that I worked with at the time. So I had made friends with uh, two of the guys in the maintenance department and another guy, uh, I think this may have been one of the guys in my church. And we went to lunch one day, one at a time. And I just like, tell me your story. Have you ever been harassed by the police? You ever been pulled over for fake reasons? Because that's never happened to me. And I don't have any context if you don't tell me your story and what's going on and how you grew up and all that kind of stuff. And they were like, sure. And so um, that's another way that I learned exactly how different my life is from how a lot of my peers who are black grew up in many times the same state or at least the same part of the country. So knowing that those stories are out there and that they are real. They're not just a bunch of wild leftists making stuff up to try to get rid of the cops. They're real people. Many of them, you know, my brothers and brothers and Jesus who have experienced these things and will tell whoever would ask them, they're not going to go around whining about them, but they'll tell whoever asks them. And it gives me the perspective. They already have my perspective. They know that white folks don't get pulled over for no reason. They just would, they just appreciate me hearing their perspective so that I can identify with, with what it's like for them to try to come to work and be on time. Our, uh, actually the next interview I'm doing is with a former federal prosecutor oh, cool. and it's just, it's amazing how many of these issues, I mean, we've talked specifically about policing and criminal justice, but how many political issues in society intersect, you know, issues of race mm-hmm. and racism and how, if you're going to be a politically engaged person, it's going to come up. Yeah. Thinking about, you know, the church and gospel unity, what's sort of your perspective on Christians having unity in the gospel, despite differences over this kind of thing? 
I really think we have to think about the early church to some degree. There were Jew and Gentile. This was, I mean, it was a main issue. They had to figure out how are we going to worship together with people we don't really like that much? (laughs) (laughs) How are we going to worship together with the Romans who who are oppressing us? How are we going to worship together with the tax collectors who are stealing from us at the behest of the Romans? So if they had to work those things out and they were like 20 minutes this side of the ascension, then it, it only makes sense that we're going to have to work these things out 2000 years in a bazillion divergences of doctrine since then. But at, at the bottom line, I don't think we actually have a choice, but to let the gospel bridge these gaps. When I hear, uh, or when I see uh, one of my Asian friends on Twitter, who's lamenting the fact that this young lady was killed recently, maybe in California, I can't remember for sure. But anyway, somebody followed her home and killed her near her apartment. And they're lamenting this as an act against Asians in America, a violent act or hateful act. You know, I can't just scroll past it. You know, I have to let that hit me with some amount of weight. You know, when one of my African-American friends is, is lamenting something that's going on as a result of an injustice that he or she has suffered, you know, I can't just scroll past that. I have to, I have to let it impact me to some degree. I guess there, there is this, this may not be a direct equivalence, but there's some equivalence, I think, to Hebrews where it talks about, remember those who are in bondage, remember those who are in chains, because not every chain is physical. It's not made up of links. Some chains are emotional, some chains are mental, some chains are psychological. And so to remember someone who has come through, you know, whose family were, were enslaved and then their, you know, their father or grandfather was uh, redlined and then they you know they don't have any family wealth or any family legacy uh, outside of pain you know definitely different than mine and so i can't just say oh be blessed you know be warm to be filled and go on your way you know i have to allow their hurt i have to enter into their hurt or allow their hurt to enter into me in some way um and and allow the gospel to bridge that gap Um, because I think in the early church, that was one of the identifying characteristics was that all these disparate, disparate people that should not have been friends that should not have been worshiping together, that should not have been sharing a common table. were doing just that, uh, as I was, I was reading Eric Mason's book this morning, and he was referring to Philemon again, um, which is a book that I love and have studied to some, at some length. And what Paul is doing there is the fleshing out of there's neither slave nor free. He's got, you know, it's the only private, it's the only personal letter written in the New Testament. And it's about a a former slave, at least the the most common theory is the former slave or slave and his master, both members of the same church and Paul trying to work out salvation and help them work out their own salvation under this new paradigm of you guys are really brothers. You know, you don't even need to think of yourself as slave and master anymore. You're really brothers. And by the way, I need, I need Onesimus. So send him back. So I I think without the gospel, then we're never going to find that depth of reconciliation. It's always going to be some kind of surface because we're afraid of being hurt or afraid of saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And there has to be a willingness to enter in and experience forgiveness and say stupid stuff accidentally and, and experience mercy and, uh, repent and, uh, just, you know, be willing to step in, step in it when, when it calls for it. In terms of things that are out of bounds, are there sort of political 
whether specific positions or postures that just need to be out of bounds for believers if we're going to live together in unity? Well, Paul called out the Corinthians for letting a dude stay in their membership who is sleeping with his daddy's wife or his mama, or I don't know, man, I never have figured out exactly what was going on there, but he called them out by everything except name and everybody in that letter knew exactly who he was talking about. So I really don't think Paul's position seemed to be that if you don't get this guy out of your fellowship or get him to repent, you're not going to be able to have unity. So, um, it's, it's almost like the conversations that we avoid only lead to more disunity. Uh, you can't, you can't, forever and a day, ignore the elephants that are in the room. You have to admit that they're there. You have to address them and decide whether to get them out of the room or just paint them, you know, paint them the same color as the wall. I mean, you have to figure out what to do with these things. And so sometimes if you're a pastor, I mean, sometimes you can have a service where you just say, we've got to talk about some pretty heavy stuff and you may not even agree with me on all of this. I'm going to try my best to exposit the scripture and not just give you my opinions. Um, and if you have questions, then let's make an appointment. And let's talk about it. But this week, we really have got to talk about something that's been happening in our country, in our state, in our city. You know, you guys know that there was a black kid shot after the ball game, and this is what that means for our African American friends and our African American churches. And I promise you, what they're going through this morning at nine o'clock or ten thirty or whatever is a lot different than what we're doing right now, even though we're trying to lament. And we need to try to understand. And here's what that might look like. Or the next week you swap the pulpit with that guy from that church and you let him come in and say, this is what we did last week. And this is why it hurts so bad. And this is why you don't always feel what we feel. And it's, it's not wrong that you don't, but it is wrong if you try to deny what we feel by saying we shouldn't feel that way. So there are some hard, hard conversations that we would all be better off having. The church my wife and I were most recently members of before the church plant we're currently in, uh, the pastor there did a great job of trying to affect racial reconciliation in our community. And we had multiple combined worship services with uh, African-American and white churches and tried to bridge those gaps. And after the third or fourth one uh, in which we had a great time every time, and it was really special, you know, I looked around and I'm like, you know, if, if we don't take the next step, which is all of us who are in here start getting into each other's lives and not just waiting on us to have a, a hope service or something like that, then this is always and forever just going to be a sanitized version of what we're doing wrong anyway. And so it's, it, it's really hard to bridge that, but those are conversations that I think we have to have. Uh, and unless we're willing to have them, then it's always going to feel weird. If we have the conversations, it'll feel weird while we're having the conversation and then it'll be better and we can grow. If we never have the conversation and we're always going to feel weird and we're never going to grow. That's so good. I, I love that kind of thing. But like you say, unless you follow it up. With and I'm not saying it's easy. And that's the reason it doesn't happen more. If it was easy, it'd be, I think it would, I actually do think it would be happening. It's not easy. I mean, you got to make appointments. You got to ask people for their phone number. You got to follow up. If they bail out, you got to follow up some more. So it, it takes time. It takes effort. It's um, it can be frustrating, but I think it's what it takes. Well, I really appreciate the advice, especially from a pastoral perspective. Um, I'll, I'll get you out of here on this one, thinking about it in the context of the local church and the average member. What can I as a Christian and member of my church do to foster greater unity, whether that's ethnic or political or whatever? Regardless of what ethnicity or race you are, if you're in conversations where you recognize that other valid viewpoints 
are not being represented in the conversation, then you can bring those in. Uh, it's very easy to say, you know, that's, that's probably how I would feel, but I talked to a friend of mine last week, his name is Mark and we went to lunch and he's, he's an African-American dude works down here at whatever. Um, and we were talking about this and this is what he said to me. And when he told me that I didn't get it at first, but when I thought about it, it made sense. And then you say what he said. So bringing other perspectives into conversations that are kind of, uh, monoculture will help everybody in the conversation, not everybody, because some people are not going to hear, but it will help the people who are open and honest and just lacking knowledge. It will help those folks. Uh, and then you can start moving the ball forward a little better. I think. Amen to all of that. Well, Marty, definitely appreciate your time and your wisdom. Just love the work you're doing. Well, thanks for having me on, man. I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. We, we, what we tend to do on these is we close the episodes in prayer. Would you be willing to do that? Sure. Great. Do you mind opening and now I'll close this? Oh, that's great. Yeah. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to fellowship, uh, even though it's virtual. Uh, we know that in, uh, when we pray, it's kind of virtual. Uh, so being on Zoom is um, something we're accustomed to, and we're thankful that because uh, one is in Birmingham uh, and one is in Nashville, that uh, that doesn't disqualify or discount our ability to pray, and we're grateful for that. Uh, Lord, this is a, a tremendously important subject, and we're so we're weighed down by how little progress we see uh, being made, and uh, often for myself, how little progress I feel like I am making in racial reconciliation or uh, unity and diversity, the things that would make our churches stronger. Uh, Lord, I do feel weak in these areas a lot of times. So, uh, Lord, I ask that you'd help me do better. And for anybody listening, that we would learn to uh, count others better than ourselves, that we would listen to those who are uh, outside of our cultural context, uh, that we would learn from uh, those who have different experiences than, than what we do, and that we would begin to recognize that uh, just because something is the way that I have known uh, doesn't make it universal and sometimes doesn't even make it right. And uh, then I pray that there'll be a lot of recognition from the conversations that are generated uh, and repentance where necessary so that we can learn together, love each other and love you uh, better than we have. And we ask you these things in Jesus name. Amen. Fathers, we read the word. We understand how important unity is to you and how you literally sent Christ to die for the unity of your people. And Lord, we confess how bad we are at mm -hmm. doing that. And we just ask for your help. We ask for wisdom. We ask for a change of heart that would treasure that unity, desire it, seek it out, and then do the hard work to make it happen. And so Lord, as we both go to our separate context, Lord, for all who are listening, Lord, we just pray that you um, work that desire and effort in us. May mm -hmm. we be ministers of reconciliation as you've called us to be in praise in christ's name amen amen marty thank you and thank you for listening you can find more about our work at youwepray.com grace and peace Yeah.